You know, the holidays are just such a great time because people just, they, they visit. There's Joanna Reynolds. She's making her way out the back. It's good to see Joanna. Woohoo! They live up in Maryland now, but they were with us. We were in the movie theater. I see Justin Breezy over here. Come on. He was with us. We were in the movie theater. People coming into town for the holidays and for weddings and such. And so we've got a giveaway, but before I do that, this doesn't have anything to do with the giveaway, but the, uh, you know, I usually like a bigger ring. We're going to set that on fire. I'm going to jump through that a little bit later in the service. And so I've never used one that small before. So any, anybody here not have any idea what that is? Yeah, that's great because you're going to find out at the end of the service. I'm not going to tell you. So no, I'm just kidding. We have some, an, an aerial feat that's going to take place in there uh, a little bit later at the end of the service. So I was talking to some people before the service and they were wondering, are, you know, are they going to throw a football through that and there's going to be a prize? Or, who, anybody else have some guesses for what that thing was? Clem, what did you think it was? Tigers. Yes. Oh, that would be cool, huh? Yes. Tigers. Can anybody top that? Nobody else is going to share now, Clem, because they can't beat that. Lauren, what did you do? Are they pointing at you, Lauren? It, it is. It's not going to be Lynette, but it is the craft that she knows. Yes. Anybody else have any other crazy guesses of what you thought that was? Come on. Nathaniel. The portal. Yes. We have discovered time travel here at the City Life Church. So we're going to be stepping back into the Christmas story. No other church is doing that on the peninsula. So, Our giveaway, I want to do our giveaway to Steve and Kathy Terrio because they became grandparents in November. Come on. So there's a little $10 gift card to TGI Fridays. Just before the service, they said, do we, do we look any different? And that's always a dangerous question, right? So you're hoping that they'll tell you the answer before you have to say anything. And so... They said, we became grandparents, and so we're excited for you guys. So that's awesome. So what's, what's is it a grand, boy or girl? Grandson. Grandson. What's his name? Henry. Henry. Let's pray for Henry. Let's do that. Father, we just, we lift up Henry to you as he's broken out into this world, and we know what a picture that's going to be for his life. Father, we just speak it over him now, God, that he's going to break into other people's world with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that even from an early age that he's going to be a light, that he's going to be like a Samuel in the house of God that hears your voice even as a child, that, Father, that he's going to be a person that goes out to his generation, that he's not going to be the light that's hidden under a basket, that he's going to be the salt of the earth for Henry in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. amen. That's good. Well, we're excited about this series that we are launching tonight and to kind of get our thoughts moving in the right direction, my first job out of college. Hey, and speaking of college, how many, seeing you students, you had class today? Yeah. What is up with that? All right, I'm going to write President Tribble a letter and just say, you know, hey, we have church on Saturday. You can't be having, I bet they're not having class tomorrow on Sunday. Yeah, see? That's a little biased against Saturday church people, just for the record. Maybe if he's listening to this podcast, right? Yeah. So my first job out of college, my first job out of college was at the Christian Children's Fund. I don't think they call it that anymore. It's a different name, but it's the International Child Sponsorship Agency. I worked there for five years, and uh, I was in a seminar one afternoon. There's a lot of education that goes along with that, knowing what's happening in developing countries. And, and this particular seminar was talking about early childhood development and the, to compare and contrast what it's like to be a, a child that's born in a developing country versus a child that's born in an industrialized country. And so they did a study over several years, and they were tracking their rate of development. 
you know, cognitive abilities, uh, you know, the hand-eye coordination, the, the growth of their physical body, birth weights, things like that. And, and, the, and the study produced a result that they weren't expecting. The study produced a result that really caught them off guard because they were certain that what they were going to find were that the children that were born into, in developing countries, that they would lag behind children that were born in, in industrialized countries. And what they found was just the opposite. What they found were that children that were born in developing countries, they developed so much faster than children born in countries like the United States. I mean, it was striking the contrast between the two. Now, eventually, you know, being in a developing country, you know, that, that change, it shifted because death rates and, and, and danger and, 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 and accidents and trauma and things like that, uh, famine and, and dehydration, eventually that began to level off. But it took them a while to figure out what caused these children before they lived in the world long enough to be affected by the developing countries. How, how did they grow and change so much faster than children that have all the advantages of modernity. And what they found was that it was human contact. That children born in developing countries are in constant contact with another human being. They sleep in a bed with another human being. They're always attached to their parent or a caretaker when they go out into the fields to work. That baby is strapped and they begin to realize that because these children are strapped to another human being laying next, they are never alone. That that human contact caused a response from them physically, emotionally, intellectually that caused them to grow so much faster than children in industrialized nations. And I've always remembered that because I've thought, you know, what a powerful picture that is for you and I. It's a powerful picture for you and I and our spiritual life. This series, Near, is all about the nearness of God and the, the, the basis, our big idea that we're going to be looking at together over these next several weeks is that you and I are desperate for the nearness of God. Of all the ways we hope to grow in this life, the physical proximity of our Heavenly Father is essential. We do not believe that God is just an idea. He is a living presence, and He wants to be a living presence that breaks in on our world. The physical proximity of our Heavenly Father is essential. This Christmas, our greatest present will be His presence. One of my favorite quotes is by Abraham Heschel. He says that to the prophets that, that, that God was shatteringly present. I want God to be shatteringly present in your world. I want God to be shatteringly present in my world. All the ways that he wants us to grow, it's only going to happen if we're near to him. Psalm 73, we're going to look at some different texts throughout this series. This is the one I picked for night to, tonight to kind of launch us off. It's beginning in verse 23. It says, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you, and I desire nothing on earth but you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. What's he saying there? He's saying that he does not have the ability to change in all the ways that he needs to grow in this life. He's helpless without God, and so are we. Verse 27, it says, those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Here it is, verse 28. But as for me, God's presence is my good. His presence, his nearness, the psalmist writes, is his greatest treasure. The physical proximity of his God, and may it also be for you and I. 
All right, so just to give you a snapshot to whet your appetite a little bit, there's five Saturdays in December. So we're going to be talking about Egypt tonight, this idea of the nearness in the heart. We're going to find that in the Christmas story that there are four geographic locations that are mentioned specifically, and there's lots of reasons for that, but we believe that everything in the Bible is instructive. And what we're going to see even tonight, and we'll see as we work through this series, that each of these geographic locations teach us something about the nearness of God in a very unique way. Next week, we're going to talk about Nazareth, this nearness of God in the least, Jerusalem, and in the church. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to move in a little bit different direction. We've got an hour candlelight service that we're going to do that night on the 24th. And then we're going to wrap up New Year's Eve uh, with Bethlehem and the nearness of God in the spirit. So Matthew 1, 18 through 24, this is going to be kind of the text of the sermon tonight. Matthew 1, 18 through 24. This is a, a part of the Christmas narrative. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant. Uh-oh, right? But as we keep reading, we realize that it's not an uh-oh, it's an amen. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly because this idea of her uh, what's happening to her being by the hand of God, Joseph didn't know that yet. The writer of Matthew is giving us that detail, so we'll understand it. But in Joseph's journey in the story, he doesn't know what's happened to her yet. So it says, but after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, listen to this, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus in the Hebrew literally means Jehovah is salvation. Now verse 22, now all of these things took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophets, and this is Isaiah 7, Matthew quotes here, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel. Now, if you're paying attention to the text, you realize that that seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? Because the angel of the Lord just told Joseph to name him Jesus, but yet when Matthew is writing the story of the account, he pulls one out of Isaiah, and it says that he's supposed to be named Emmanuel. So did the angel, did he not get it right? You know, is that how the scene played out in heaven, right? This angel, they get their big chance to step into the moment of history. Not just a moment of history, but the moment of history where the Savior of the world is born. And you can see the angel, right, is getting prepped, all right? This is what you need to say. This is who you're supposed to go to. This is his picture. This is what he looks like. His name is Joseph. He's a little upset. This is what happened. Now, if you don't get anything else right, make sure you get the name right. His name is supposed to be Emmanuel. We've written it right here on this scroll. Here it is, right? So the angel gets there, right, and he's given his speech, and then he gets to the end and says, oh, it's smudged, right? Does he just pick Jesus because he's thinking that, well, it means Jehovah is salvation. How, if I've messed up, how bad could it be? He's got two names because there's deep meaning that connects both of those names together. His name is Jesus, but he's also called Emmanuel, and we're going to spend our time tonight understanding the depth of meaning that we find in both of those names and how it connects to the place of Egypt that the story in Matthew gives to us as we move forward. There's a nearness of God within us in the heart that is only possible, listen to this, when we accept the atoning death of Christ, we're going to talk about it tonight, on our behalf. 
We cannot experience the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. We cannot experience the promise of Emmanuel until we embrace the person of Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. The idea of Emmanuel is the prize that God wants you and I to have. The idea of Emmanuel that's wrapped up in that name, God with us, is the nearness of our creator. God wants to be near to you. He wants to be next to you. And as we're going to see tonight, being next to you, even for God, is not enough. He wants to be inside of you. He wants you to discover the nearness of him in the heart. And so he calls his son Jesus so that we can understand that the only way that you and I can ever experience the great prize and the great promise of the proximity of his presence on the inside, the only way we're going to possess the experience of Emmanuel is if we embrace the person of Jesus and what he did for you and I when he died on the cross. Matthew 2.15, it says that they went into Egypt. They went into Egypt. Now, why are all these places of geography given to us in the story of Christmas? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, it's because God wants us to understand it's not mythology, it's history. In academia and in the world, people will try to tell you that the Bible are fables. They'll try to tell you that it's, it's Christian mythology, like Greek mythology. But come on, we know that this is a book of history. And even the things in here, like we just read, like a virgin conceiving by the power of the Holy Spirit, seems to be something akin to fantasy and fable. We know that it's truth. And one of the ways that God helps us to discover the truth of what's happening is he's very intentional about giving us specific geographic locations. He gives us the names of people in history. He states dates and times and offices that people held because he's saying to us over and over and over and over again, don't let people convince you that what's in here is not true. Come on, it's a truth to build your life upon. It's given to us because God wants us to understand that of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Of all the people that have come into the world to say that they've been sent by God, they've not fulfilled the things that God said would be the evidence of how we would recognize them, and Jesus does it all. But I believe that Egypt is also given to us in this story because God wants us to understand something about this play between the names of Emmanuel and Jesus. I believe that Egypt is put into this narrative and given to us because when we see that name, there's something that we remember about that place. So what's something about, as you, we like participation at the City Life Church, when you study the Bible, what are, what are some things that happened in Egypt that were significant in the story of Scripture? Somebody shoot your hand up. Yes. Yes, Joseph went there and became second in command. You set that up wonderfully. Thank you, Sabra. And then, and then after Joseph went there, something happened in the story. What happened next, Chuck? Go ahead. Yep. You've got it. That's it. So Joseph goes there. The Israelites begin to thrive, and the Egyptians feel threatened. That's very nice. You got it dialed right in. And then so the Pharaoh, they begin to kill off the male children because they're trying to control the population. And then, and then what happens? In the middle of that story, a certain character rises up. Somebody else over here. 
Moses, yes, he's put into a basket, he's launched in, and he becomes the deliverer of God's people. All throughout the Bible, we read about Egypt and we find that Egypt is a place of deliverance, that Egypt is a place where God begins to teach the world about atonement, where God begins to teach the world what we need to understand in our own lives today if we have any expectation and any hope of the nearness of God of heart. The holiness of God demands justice. In God's economy, death is the currency of forgiveness. This is an important definition for us at the City Life Church for grace. Grace is not the act of ignoring sin, but rather allowing a substitutionary death to bear its consequence. Let me say that again. Grace is not the act of ignoring sin. It's allowing a substitutionary death to bear the burden of the consequence of the sin that someone else has committed. Jesus was born into this world so that he might die for you and I, so that we could possess the prize of the presence of God in the heart of man. Substitutionary. Let me read you some of these verses. This is in Genesis 3. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord made clothing for, from animal skins for Adam and his wife. He, right there in the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they weren't supposed to, right? And they were going to have to leave the Garden of Eden. We know that they were naked in the Garden of Eden. That's another sermon for another time, all the reasons for that, the imagery that's there for us. But here we see on their way out that God kills an animal for them to be clothed. And he's not just meeting a practical need for Adam and Eve. He's trying to teach us something about grace. The picture of them being clothed in the skin of the animals that were, had been killed is a picture of the grace of God, that they're being clothed in God's forgiveness, and God is teaching us the idea of, of about atonement, that there's a substitutionary death for the mistake of another. Listen to this. This is Exodus 12, what we just talked about in Egypt. This is the animal. The animal that you select must be one year old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. It says, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight, and they are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the house where they eat the animal. And on that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. And I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt for I am the Lord. Listen to this. But the blood of your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that gave the Jewish people the feast of Passover. Come on. I will pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is a day to remember each year from generation to generation. You must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all of time. Let me give you one more. This is Leviticus 4, 22 to 26. It says, if one of Israel's leaders sins by violating one of the commands of the Lord, his God, but doesn't realize it, he is still guilty. And when he becomes aware of his sin, he must bring as his offering a male goat with no defects, and he must lay his hand on the goat's head and slaughter it at the place where burnt offerings are slaughtered before the Lord. This is an offering for his sin. It says, then the priest will dip his finger in the blood of the sin offering and put it on the horns of the altar 
for burnt offerings, and he will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And listen to this. Through this process, the priest will purify the leader from his sin, making him right with the Lord, and he will be forgiven. From the beginning of time, God wants us to understand what grace is, that he allows a substitutionary death to bear the consequence of sin. It is the destiny of Jesus to step into the world to bear that weight for you and I so that we can possess the presence that he longs to give. So when we turn into the New Testament, we get to John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. We see John the Baptist. He's Jesus' cousin. He's out in the wilderness. He's preaching. He's baptizing people. And he's telling people that the Messiah is coming. They, he's, he's, he's telling the world that all that they've been waiting for for centuries is moments away. And then Jesus comes in to one of John's meetings, and John says, right there in the text, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, can you imagine being a Jewish person in the first century, from generation to generation to generation, you have participated in the feast of the Passover every year with your family. You're looking back to what happened in Egypt. Everybody understands that what happened in Egypt just wasn't to deliver the Israelites so that they could move on to the promised land, but they understood that it had a prophetic message attached to it that one day God would send the Messiah into the world and he would bear once and for all the sins for all people for all time. And so every generation grew up with a hope and an expectation that the Messiah would come in their lifetime. It's just like for us as Christians, we know that Jesus said that one day he's going to come back. There's something inside of us that wants to be a part of the generation when Jesus returns. For the Jewish people in the first century, for them, they wanted to be a part of the generation when the Messiah would come. So when John the Baptist stands up in the middle of his meeting and points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These people have been reading Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Genesis, all these texts in the Bible that talked about a substitutionary death. They understood exactly what John was saying. So the writer of Hebrews and speaking of Jesus, says, For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in scriptures. For God's will was for once to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all of time. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17 says, Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. We have a will, right? It's responsible parents for our children to spell out what should happen if something should happen to us prematurely. If our kids find that notebook, right, they can't wander into some attorney's office and say, here, I found my parents' will. Could you go ahead and execute this for me, right? Somebody has to die in order for the inheritance to come. And it's no different in the kingdom of heaven. 
When Jesus Christ died on that cross, he made possible the greatest inheritance that's ever been released into this world. This idea of the blood of Christ is so important to us as Christ followers because his blood that was shed on that cross stands as a testament for all of time that the death has finally come that makes it possible for you and I to take the inheritance that God's been waiting to give back to man ever since Adam and Eve lost it in the beginning of time. What then is our inheritance? It's not forgiveness. It's not grace. It is Emmanuel. It is God with us. The grace of God is the means to the end. The forgiveness of God is the means to the end. That which he wants us to possess is himself. That which he wants us to own, that which he wants us to have, that which he wants us to wake up with, having a sense of, of, of belonging to every day is the proximity of his presence, that he is a living God. And because a substitutionary death has laid down his life, you and I can step in and be the benefactor of the greatest inheritance that we will ever have. Near in the heart. First Peter 3, 4 is one of my favorite sayings in the Bible. He uses this phrase in the Greek. It's kruptos anthropos cardia. It's the hidden person of the heart. Kruptos gives us the word cryptic or cryptology, and, and anthropos is anthropology, and then cardi cardiology, the hidden person of the heart. All throughout scriptures, we find this idea that there's a part to you and I that's unseen. There's a part that's eternal. Of all that God created in this world, he created you and I different from everything else. Of everything in this world that gives us a sense of wonder, of everything in this world that gives us a sense of pause because of its grandeur, there is nothing in this world that compares to the beauty of humanity. The most beautiful setting in nature, your favorite place to go to be captured by awe and beauty, maybe even a place that you've not been yet, you've just seen pictures of it, you can't wait to get there. If you want to see true beauty, come on, you look in the mirror because there is nothing more beautiful than you and I. Because nature does not have the capacity to hold within itself that which made it. The cryptos anthropos cardia, the hidden person of the heart. You and I were created by God with the capacity for him to live inside of us. He just doesn't want to be near to you in presence, in a room, in a space. He wants to live inside of your heart. Listen to this verse in John 14, 17. It says, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. Listen to what Jesus says to the disciples. But you know him because he lives with you and later he'll be in you because Jesus has not gone to the cross. The substitutionary death has not taken place. The ultimate grace and forgiveness that God wants to give to the world can't come because Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, that moment has not yet come. But then when we get to John 20, 20 through 22, this is what's called a post-resurrection encounter. Jesus has already died. He's risen from the dead. He passes through a wall, comes into the room where the disciples are, and it says, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And it says, he breathed on them and said, receive 
the Holy Spirit. When we read in the book of Genesis, what did God do to Adam when he gathered up the dust of the earth? What did he do? He breathed on him. In the Hebrew, it's the Ruach HaKodesh, the breath of God, the breath of heaven. This is the first time in the history of the world since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden that God once again breathed himself on people and took up a residence inside of his children. And it's the inheritance that awaits for you and I. Adam and Eve, when they left the Garden of Eden, the loss of paradise wasn't the beauty and the grandeur of the garden in which they live. It was the loss of the living God inside their heart, which came back into the world the moment of Jesus' death. It says that as Jesus breathed his last, the curtain that separated the holiest of holies in the temple from everywhere else where the Spirit of God remained until Jesus came, it says it was split from top to bottom and God's Spirit came rushing back out into the world. And you know where he wanted to go? He wanted to come to you and I. It's a miracle, isn't it? A universe that's still too small to contain him, he finds a way to fit into his children. Colossians 1.27, for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you. And this is the secret, that Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in his glory, our great inheritance. Matthew 9, 16 through 17, I love this parable. It says, besides who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. In verse 17, it says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. The death of Jesus transforms the fabric of our humanity. It renews the wineskin of our anthropology so that God can be with us. He is Emmanuel because he is the promise of what awaits you and I. He is Emmanuel because embodied in the person of Jesus is the great hope that you and I are born with, that Henry was born with, that one day that he's going to taste of in a moment of reality. He's going to learn about it in a church, and then one day he's going to bend his own knee. Come on, Steve. And he's going to make a declaration of faith to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, Emmanuel is going to become Jesus, the hope of glory in him, life eternal forevermore. I'm going to invite the ushers to... Make ready for the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a sacred thing for us as Christ followers. The Lord's table is the place that, that Christ invites us to come back to, to celebrate and remember everything that we've been talking about tonight. That grace is not ignoring an act of sin. It's allowing a substitutionary death to bear its consequence. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God who bears the sins of all the world. There is a nearness of God within us, in the heart, that is only possible when we accept the atoning death of Christ on our behalf. We cannot experience the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, until we embrace the person of Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. I'm going to invite the ushers just as they are ready. They can begin to distribute the elements. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to worship a little bit together. 
This is an open communion, which means that the only thing that you need to do to be able to share in the Lord's table with us is that you can look back into the story of your life and you've embraced Jesus so that he can be your Emmanuel. And if you can't find a moment in your life where you've made a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, then come on, you make it tonight and receive the great inheritance, the greatest inheritance that you will ever have, that God himself will stand in front of you on this night. He'll breathe on you like he has breathed on so many of us, and something inside of you will be changed and transformed forever. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. We're going to hold these elements together. We're going to partake of it all together in one moment as a church. So you can hold that piece of bread and you can hold that cup and then I'll come back up in just a few minutes and walk us through partaking it. So we finished kind of where we started with Tim's exhortation. Are we there yet? My hope is that something inside of you is longing to arrive at the place that God has been calling you to from the moment you took your first breath. It's a powerful thing to be in a hospital room and to see a baby take their first breath. I've had the opportunity to do that on three different occasions with ours. I mean that... That moment that they live on their own. There's a spiritual breath that God wants each of us to take. It's hard sometimes to get our brain around this idea of not yet being fully born, even though we're fully alive. But the hidden person of the heart doesn't live until God breathes on you. And if you've never felt him breathe on you tonight, if you've never felt him breathe on you tonight, then may it be that tonight would be the night that you would open up your heart. That tonight would be the night that you would say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Lamb of God, that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you are Jesus, Yeshua, that Jehovah is my salvation, and that I want the Emmanuel that you promise, your nearness in my heart for all eternity. Let's worship together. You can stay seated.